Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare, delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate you tuning in for this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered, and today's podcast is about entrepreneurship. I am interviewing an amazing founder and CEO of a company called Explorer Surgical, who I had a chance to meet several years back, and I have been amazed, fascinated in the progress that she has done over the past several years in taking a company along with her colleagues from scratch until it was sold in 2021. The journey of a CEO entrepreneur today on Healthcare Unfiltered with Jennifer Freed, who continues to amaze me and I want you to be as amazed. And for those of you who are interested more in a clinically related healthcare podcast, I also have another podcast called The Hemonc Pulse, which is sponsored by Blood Cancers Today. It is focused only on hematology and hematology only, discussing lots of aspects when it comes to hematology therapy and clinical advances. So you can check that out as well. So thank you for tuning in to Healthcare Unfiltered, and thank you for joining me on today's podcast. Don't forget to visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. And don't forget, of course, to subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, refer friends and colleagues to the podcast and let them know about this podcast. You can watch all of the episodes of this podcast on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And if you are a loyal listener and a subscriber, don't forget to tweet at me and direct message me at Shadi Nabhan so I can send you the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. Of course, you need to check out my book and to buy the book. And if you don't know what the book I'm talking about, then you need to go to amazon.com or to John Hopkins University Press, and you will find all of the information that you need about the first book I have ever written to the public. Without further ado, Jennifer Freed, exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered, describing her journey as a CEO entrepreneur. As a first time, appearance on Healthcare Unfiltered. Tell listeners a little bit about you and um, a little bit more of a background uh, to until the point where you decided to form your own company. Well, you are too kind in your introduction and you left out the most important part, which is that now we're neighbors. So that's the best we part. Our neighbors. We are neighbors. We are neighbors. More often and go find all of the good coffee shops in the North Shore of Chicago. Um, so thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, so for anybody watching this that hasn't met me, I'm Jennifer Freed. Um, I am most recently the co-founder and CEO of Explorer Surgical, um, which I think we'll get into today and talk about. I uh, have been in Chicago now for the past 15 years plus and have spent my career um, initially as a consultant at Bain. Um, and then after that, kind of going back and forth as an early stage healthcare technology investor, um, but also operator, entrepreneur. And it's been a privilege to, you know, see and be a part of so many great emerging health tech companies that are going out 
and changing the world uh, for physicians and for patients and for the entire healthcare ecosystem. Jennifer, help me understand a little bit. I mean, in our in our lifetime, or you know, we go to school and we get a job and and you know, raise a family or not, whatever it is. What happens that you one day you decide I'm gonna found I'm gonna find a company like I'm gonna create a company. Yeah. I, I tend to believe that this is not something that just occurs it, easily. No. <laughs> like what what happened? You woke up one day like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, t- tell me how this happened. I, you know, I I wish it was that simple, but I feel like it, it rarely is. So, you know, I've always been so excited and passionate about healthcare uh, because it's something that just touches every one of us, whether whether we like it or not, you know, we're going to go through the healthcare system, our loved ones, our family, our friends are going to go through it. And so I've always been fascinated by healthcare and found it just so meaningful, but also so broken in many ways. Um, but for me, I never had the desire to, you know, pursue a clinical degree. I didn't have the calling to go out and, you know, be a physician or, or be a nurse or, you know, work in the healthcare industry in that way and take care of patients. But I've been fascinated by the business side of healthcare, the finance side of healthcare, and the innovation. So Explore is absolutely not my idea. I take no credit for it. Um, The concept was born out of a research lab within the Department of Surgery at University of Chicago by my co-founder, Dr. Alex Langerman. And so Alex had spent, I met him in 2013, and two years prior, he had founded a research lab that was dedicated to studying operating room workflow and operating room efficiency, or the lack thereof, as we like to say. And so Alex um, had seen so many challenges in his own day-to-day as a surgeon around how was the OR run? So how do you coordinate an entire team of people to take care of a patient when you constantly have new people coming in, new products, new procedures that you're doing? So the, the vision for Explorer was firmly Alex's. And so I met him um, when I was in graduate school at University of Chicago, and I was there to focus on pursuing a career in finance. Um, That was my plan. I'd been kind of a math and business and finance person, and that was what I wanted to do. And moving on to the investing side of healthcare, it's incredibly important to know what's happening in the best healthcare institutions. So a lot of what I did as a student was go around and talk to different physicians and see the research that was going on at, you know, at a university like University of Chicago, there's so much that's happening and there's so much innovation and just really groundbreaking research. And so I met Alex when he was giving a talk and when he described how chaotic the OR could be at times, I honestly didn't believe him. So, you know, he was describing a world where you know, as much as 50% of the time, he would have somebody brand new in his operating room that wasn't familiar with the procedures or the stop-by-stop, you know, or how to do a certain case. And, you know, he would describe these disruptions during his case where he would have, you know, five, 10 minutes, sometimes longer, where he would have to completely stop a surgery with the patient open on the table while somebody left to go get the right instrument or get the right tray or get something set up. And as at the time, an outsider to the operating room, I just said, there's, there's no way that this is happening, right? And there's no way this is happening that often at such a great institution. And so what Alex did was he invited me into the operating room to see it for myself. Yeah, yeah. And just, you know, this was 2013. So this was before HIPAA was 
you know, as pervasive as it is today. So you couldn't go and do that today. There was a moment of time where I was able to go in and register as a visitor to the OR and go in and watch surgery um, and see what was happening. And I saw it for myself. Um, and, you know, in those weeks and months following getting to know Alex, understanding his research, understanding his dedication to improve patient outcomes, I became firmly convinced there was a problem. But it was never that I woke up and said, oh, I'm going to found a company or, oh, I'm going to, you know, be an entrepreneur and start something new. This was something that, you know, initially took months for me to say, yes, I believe this is a problem and it's a really big problem. It's a problem that's large enough to go out and be a venture capital backable business. Um, But it actually took me several years before I was ready to commit full time and say, I'm ready to dive in. I'm ready to take this on. I'm ready to take the risk and leave a, at the time, a very good, stable career in finance to go and build this business. And it was because I was so passionate about it. So let's go back a little bit about the problem. Uh, I heard sure. it, it seems, I mean, for the listener out there, it appears to me it's chaos in the operating room. <laughs> not all the time. Which is not, you know, <laughs> I, I say but that it can it, be because it's not reassuring. Like if I'm a patient, Obviously, you know, I would be concerned hearing this. So I believe it's, I want to make sure that we convey it's not really that that chaotic, but it's not perfect. So when you went into the operating room and you visited with Alex, um, what did you observe? Give me like top three, four things that you really were surprised about. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think in the way that I like to describe this to, you know, fellow OR outsiders, I'll say is the thing that surprised me the most walking into the OR is from a patient perspective, you know, you think about going in there and you say, okay, well, there's a surgeon and there's an anesthesiologist and, you know, maybe there's a nurse or a tech helping. So the first thing that surprised me was the sheer number of people that are in the operating room for any given case. So a lot of the cases that I went into, you know, you would have probably on average six or seven different people that were part of the care team that were in that operating room that were part of, you know, taking care of that patient. So, you know, you'd have the surgeon or the attending surgeon um, in the case of a teaching institution, you know, you have a resident or a fellow, um, you would have a circulating nurse, you would have the scrub tech that was there, you'd have the anesthesiologist, you might have other students or people that are there observing. But the other part that was surprising to me was seeing the representatives from industry. So, you know, in more than half of surgical procedures, you're going to have a representative that's there from the medical device company that's there to support the case. So as an example, if you're coming in and you are getting um, a knee replacement, you know, you may see somebody from the company that manufactures that knee replacement who is going to have a medical device representative from their team that's in the room. So that was very eye-opening to me to see just the sheer number of people that were in the room that were all, you know, working together as a team to take care of a patient. So that was very, very surprising. Um, so that was kind of the first thing to me was, wow, you're, you're really coordinating a lot of people at one time to take care of this patient. Um, and, you know, the thing is, in surgery, it's, it's a team just like it is anywhere else. So if you think of somebody that you know, works in an office or, you know, I'll say when I was a consultant at Bain, you know, you work with a team of people on a project. 
if you are working with the same team of people doing the same types of projects over and over again, everything is very smooth, right? You know, you know how the other person is going to react. You have a playbook that you follow, you know, the step-by-step, you know how to run meetings, you know, you know, who's the person that's always going to show up five minutes late, you know, with their Starbucks in their hand, right? All of those things that make you a team and work together. And so one of the biggest challenges that, you know, I see in surgery is if you can't have a consistent team working together, that's where you start to see some of these pieces fall apart. And Alex did a lot of research on, on teamwork in the operating room and, you know, how, how having a highly consistent team, you know, can, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to officially say this, but I mean, I think ultimately the belief is that having a consistent team improves outcomes because you reduce those delays and disruptions, you know, you are able to anticipate each other. And so I think in a, a dream world, you would have the same team working together all the time. But the reality is that that isn't the case. So, you know, you see turnover in hospital settings, um, upwards of 30% a year. It takes a long time to train people. In teaching institutions, you have new people coming in and out. You may have new sales reps that are, you know, coming into the room to support cases. But also, you know, you're constantly evolving your care. So you have new devices that you're using, you know, you're taking new techniques, um, you're working with new products, or you may have different approaches. So, I mean, that's one of the amazing things about our healthcare system is I think there has been so much innovation in the medical devices that are available to surgical teams. But if, as an example, you take a procedure that used to be an open procedure with a very large incision, and now all of a sudden you say, we're not going to have that large incision, but we're going to take a small incision and use a camera and go in there and use much smaller instruments, it's a, it's a big change in workflow. It is a big change for that team. And that requires a lot of support. You obviously identified all of these issues. And then do you, the next step, was it to study the process flow and look at these things and how they happen? And then, and then to create, to create a system to optimize everything happening in the operating room, I guess, how long did it take you after that first visit until you said, you know what, I'm ready. I need to try to fix this. And we all know, Jennifer, that sometimes when you go on this, you're taking a risk because you can't really guarantee success. So take, yeah. me, take me through your mind. Like, how do you balance? What's your risk tolerance? How do you really decide I'm going to really go all in? And like you said, maybe leave a career that is a little bit more steady and stable and put a lot of effort, human capital, financial capital, and really mental capital into it. Yeah. So, you know, Alex had formed the research lab two years before I met him. And he had been doing research in this, again, for, for years. So there was already a strong foundation of this is the problem. And Alex had done a lot of that legwork. Um, when I met him in, in 2013, it was... I think he had just gotten a small grant from the Department of Surgery for about $10,000 to hire a computer science student to start to build out the very first prototype. So when I met Alex, he was working on this very early alpha version of a product. And when I met him, it was, it was very much an idea. 
And I think where we complimented each other was, you know, he had such a deep understanding of the pain point from his own practice and it captured all of this data on the problem. And I came in and was ready to help write a business plan and say, okay, let's take this step by step. And so the timing that worked, you know, to my advantage was I met him at the beginning of business school. So I wasn't working full-time. I was in school full-time for two years and we were able to kind of go step-by-step and university of Chicago as an institution actually had a lot of support and resources there to help us. So, you know, we worked with um, the i program, um, which is this really great customer discovery program uh, through the National Science Foundation University of Chicago, where we were able to get some money to go out and, and talk to prospective customers and talk to different team members in the OR to do some more customer discovery. We were then able to go through the Innovation Fund program, where we said, okay, we need a, we need a real alpha version of this that is better functioning. And we, the big thing for us was we wanted to have a very intuitive user interface um, because the OR is, as you know, complex enough as it is, right? If somebody, if, if you hand somebody a tablet and they have to click 12 buttons to get to something, it's just, it's never going to get adopted. Um, and so we then said, let's go and really invest in our, you know, UI UX design um, and create something that's really easy to navigate. And so we had all of these wireframes. And, you know, I remember like we had this initial version that was basically like a, a landing site and we could only have one procedure. So it wasn't even like a real software, you know, platform, but we were wheeling in these, you know, big TV screens into the OR and asking everybody in the room saying, what do you want to see? How do you want to see? What types of pictures would you like to see? What's useful? What do you hate seeing? What's annoying? So we did a lot of that work, you know, when Alex was at U of C. Um, and then we started to say, okay, you know, we, we understand the problem. We have a very early kind of alpha version of our solution. Now we need to go and get data to validate that this actually works. And that's where um, we went through um, the National Science Foundation um, and their SVIR program. Um, and so that is a fantastic program um, that is run um, by the government. We we're able to apply for small grants for scientific research. And then we were able to, we received a grant from them for about those $225,000 for that kind of first phase of research, where we then hired a real tech team. Um, a lot of it was contracted out, but we did bring in our chief technology officer in-house. And then we were able to actually do a study at University of Chicago, where we had the resources to say, let's go and measure all of these things of what an operating room looks like without Explore then let's go put Explore in and actually measure the outcomes and say, you know, we believe that having a software platform like this can reduce those intraoperative delays and disruptions and prevent, you know, some of those opened and unused disposable items that are so expensive for the hospital. Let's go and actually prove it. And so those are some of those initial steps. And it wasn't until we had that data back which was very, very good and very encouraging and exciting that I kind of felt ready to take the plunge. And the other thing that drove me to do it was you know, just really realizing if I didn't do it, this was going to go away. And so 
you know, we weren't at the stage where, you know, we had so much that we could come and hire in some super experienced CEO that, you know, knew what they were doing to, to come in and take it and run with it. Um, I think it really needed to be founder led. And so it took, I mean, the answer is it took years for me to get there and maybe it would be different now, but I really had to get to that point where I felt like my baby's going to die if I don't go and do this. Um, Jennifer, the, just to step back just a little bit, you mentioned Explorer a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, I know where it is, but I just don't know if the um, listeners Listener. know. Sure. Like a, maybe describe it. Is it a, a hardware, a software, device? Like what, what, what? Because what you're saying is it's an actual instrument that is helping uh, physicians and OR staff to optimize their workflow and minimize uh, waste and all that stuff. But what is it? So Explore, it's it's a software platform. Um, and Explore is a digital and remote case support platform. And there are three main components of what Explore does. So the way that Explore is delivered, it, it's a software platform. You can run it just on any web browser. Um, but most of you know the Explore customers today um, use it on iPads. And so you can have different iPads or different screens in the OR that run our software. And so the three things that the software does, you know, the first is map out step-by-step -step how to do a surgical procedure for each team member in the room. Um, and so this is really important for new procedures, um, for new devices, and for, you know, new team members. So if somebody's been doing a case all the time, they don't need this. But if you have a brand new device that is coming in or a brand new technique, this is something that everybody in the room can look at. So the scrub tech in the room, um, who's the person that's responsible for passing all of the instruments, the surgeon is able to actually see right in front of them on a screen in a sterile bag. So everything is sterile. Hey, here's the four instruments that you, know, you need to get ready off of the Mayo stand. And this is really important because there can be hundreds or even thousands of instruments that are in a room for a case. And so if I come in and say, I'm a scrub tech that normally all I do are orthopedic procedures, I could be really, really great at my job and know every single instrument. But if all of a sudden, hey, it's 3 p.m., the shift has changed, everything's running behind schedule, I get thrown in to a neurosurgery OR it's not that I'm that of my job. I just haven't seen all of these things before. And so it's meant to be a tool that's really helpful for new team members. That's imagine a playbook that is visual that maps out each part of the case. The second part of what the software does is capture data. And so as you progress through the case, we capture all of that information around how long does somebody spend on each step of the case. If you are, you know, doing a study, um, so you're bringing a new product to market and you're trying to understand, hey, how many times did it take for somebody to place this correctly? Or, you know, what angles did they use for this approach? You can easily document it right there in real time. And then the third component of what Explorer does is offer remote case support. And so you can actually have somebody that is an expert um, or somebody who's learning who just wants to watch a case not be physically in that room um, and they can see everything that's happening. They can capture data as they're watching the workflow. Um, and that was something that we added later to the platform, um, but, you know, became uh, during COVID, as you can imagine, so that that's when we added it because we had such demand from our customers. It 
became, I think, probably the most popular part of our platform because it was harder for people to get into the OR, um, especially for the team members that were from the medical device companies. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so you had the idea, you have the software, you have the technology, and now you are gonna, you know, you're gonna, you became, you want to found the company, you want to find the company, found the company, and um, do you go and pitch this to investors, to uh, to venture capitalists? Um, um, how difficult uh, was it? Um, the process of like putting a pitch deck, and and how many people laughed at you, and they said this is crazy. a lot. Right. But, you know, I, I think it's important for people who are listening to realize this is really not a walk in the park. I mean, you get probably a lot of people who rejected this and like, OK, whatever. But t- take me through that process. And yeah, and there are so many VCs. Um, I actually interviewed um, the, uh, a partner in a VC firm who is very, very inspiring and impressive. And he told me he uh, his name is Lee Shapiro and he works for Seven Wires. Yeah. Bank. He told me that he gets, his firm gets 2,300 pitches a year. 2,300 pitches a year. Um, I, yeah. I literally, my question to him was, I said, how long, the, how many minutes does it take you after the pitch starts before you know whether you're going to go in or out? Because frankly, you know, you may have like a 30 minute presentation, but within five minutes, an experienced uh, investor knows. Take me through that process, the difficulty of it, identifying the potential investors. And did you need to put some of your own money into it? Uh, well, yes, I did. Um, and, you know, so I had, if we back up, I had been working at a healthcare venture fund. So the actual, hey, putting together a, a pitch presentation and putting together a financial model, that wasn't challenging for me because I had spent so many of the past years, you know, reviewing them. Um, so that part wasn't challenging for me, but I think I went into fundraising, uh, very optimistic of, Hey, I know what I'm doing. And I've, you know, sat as a VC on this side of the table, this should be a walk in the park. And it absolutely was not. Um, and so, you know, when you talk to Lee, he, you know, he says, okay, we see 2,300 companies a year, but how many does seven wire invest in? I think it's, I'm I'm sure it's less than 10 per year. Right. right. So it's a very, very small percentage of this company. So as a founder, you know, when you're going out pitching VCs, a lot of it is a numbers game. So you have to pitch a lot. So for our very first round, um, I wanted to go out and raise $3 million to get this started because our initial approach was selling to hospitals. Um, I was really confident that we could add value, but I also knew it was going to be a long sales cycle. And so you have to buy yourself time to get off the ground and get started. I pitched over a hundred different investors and we ended up cobbling together just under a million dollars. And so it was $970,000. That was a mix of 19 different investors that it took um, for me to pull it together. And it was, it was extraordinarily hard. You know, I think overall, that's actually a pretty good hit rate, right? Like 19 over a hundred is, is, is pretty good. Um, and there were some things that I knew how to do that I think improves that, which was really focusing on who are the right investors to talk to. So a lot of pitches that VCs get aren't the right fit, either because they're not in their focus area. So, you know, somebody may say, I just don't invest in healthcare companies, or I invest in healthcare companies, but not healthcare software companies or I don't invest that early. And I got some of that wrong, but I think I had a network of, okay, I know who the people are that are writing this size check into companies like mine at this stage. Um, 
was really hard. I had a lot of people just say, you're totally crazy and this is never going to work and you have no experience as a CEO and you know, you're 26 years old and you know, what do you think that you know about surgery and all of these different things? And it was really, really hard and disheartening. Um, and sometimes I just said, what, what am I doing? Right. And so ultimately we were able to pull it together. And once we had raised that round, that's when I knew, I mean, I'm committed. So I take fiduciary responsibilities incredibly seriously. And at this point, you know, we had taken about a million dollars of outside money. And a lot of this was from people that I knew really well as my business school professors. Um, you know, I put, I, I didn't have a lot of money, but I put, you know, as much of my own money as I could into the company. Um, my parents wrote one of the very first checks into the company um, to, you know, help support and get it off the ground. And so that moment, you know, I took it really seriously. And I said, if they hadn't been taking it seriously before, like now this is the time and I have to do everything I possibly can um, to make this business successful and to make sure that I return that capital, hopefully many times over to all of these investors that are taking a bet on this company. But at that stage, they're really making a bet on me to lead it. It's really, you know, listening to you is, is amazing. First of all, I think there's the perseverance, uh, despite rejection from a lot of people when you're trying to invest is really important. But I loved what you, I love what you say about the fiduciary responsibility, right? I mean, now that you have other people's money, whether somebody gave you $20,000 or $100,000, it was their money and they put, yeah. their, they put their trust in you. They yep. believed in you. And, um, and you can't just walk away from that. You can't walk away. So it, it puts a lot of uh, uh, on you. Now, a million dollars may appear a lot of money, but me and you know it's probably not a lot of money yeah, when it comes to really getting company because you have to have hire employees, you have to bring people. So you got the first of million dollars. Yeah. What was what was your what were your first uh, few steps after you got that money? So for us at that point, this is 2016. It was we got to get this in more sites, and so I knew that that it, we wanted to start selling it and getting some revenue because at that point, you know, we we had kind of our our first, I'd say, good commercial offering. It wasn't like a great commercial offering, but we had an amazing CTO that had built a software that had a lot more functionality than what we had before. Um, but, you know, I think the big step was we need to see this in use. And so we had that data from the University of Chicago, but that was for just one, one type of general surgery, right, in one setting. And that's where I said, okay, if we're going to go out and raise more money and we're going to have to do this pretty soon because that million bucks isn't going to last us that long, we need to see what Explorer can do in other settings, and so that's where, you know, we ended up working with, I think it was five initial provider sites. Um, and we said, we need to see this in different surgical specialties. We need to see how this works in different procedures. We need to see how it is outside of an academic hospital. We wanted to look at surgery centers. So that was my big mandate was I want to go out and meet with as many, you know, thought leader surgeons that are interested in using a product like this and operating room directors that are interested in innovative technology platforms and just get people to try it. They didn't need to pay me. I just wanted them to try it so that I could really say, this is how much of a difference Explore can make 
so that we could then go out and start to commercialize later on. I guess, how do you decide on hiring people to help you with this? Because obviously people want to get paid and, you know, a million dollars with benefits can probably barely make you hire enough people to really scale up what you're trying to do, which is going to a lot of sites, including community hospitals and other sites. So do you just hire like one or two people and see what you could do? Do you contract? Like, how do you build a model that, because you still need more money. I mean, that's. Oh, yeah. Um, so it was, it was me. I mean, it was, I was like the, the one woman commercial shop. You were the and, commercial person, the CEO and everybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our, our full-time team was, I don't know, like maybe four people. It was, it was really small. Um, and so a lot of the investment was in technology. And so we, um, our, our chief technology officer, we had hired full-time before that, even before I joined, um, we were able to do that with the grant money. Um, and his, his team was primarily offshore. And so we were able to manage our costs in a way that were appropriate for the business at the time. But I mean, it was me, like I was hustling. I mean, I, I can still tell you like, you know, the ways to get to the OR director's office for like 50 different (laughs) hospitals, like send me to Stanford. I'm like, okay, like, I know this is a little back staircase that has the five steps and here's where you go. Um, I think they got sick of seeing me all the time just showing up like, Hey, but I I was a road warrior. I mean, that's what I did. I went and um, met with all these surgeons. Um, We had a junior team member who was terrific. And one of our strategies was trying to find the surgeons that were doing research. So like we, like we had Alex and we're like, how do I find more Alex's that are out there that are passionate about solving this problem? And so we um, had gone on PubMed and looked for uh, physicians that were publishing research on this topic. And that was one of the techniques that we used to try and find some of these initial doctors to say, do you want to try this in your operating room and see how it works? So that was really what I was doing. Um, But then the reality was, so we closed that round, I think it was um, August of 2016, you know, by February of 2017, I had to go out and start raising more money um, because we had about six months of runway at the time. And so it takes a little while to to close around and find those right investors. So, I mean, I was running for those six months trying to get more sites. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of part-time people that were helping us support those sites, getting it up and running. Um, we worked with a lot of uh, residents, med students, and then also post-bac students. Um, they were, we, that was a terrific source of talent. We worked with post-bac students from Northwestern who were so smart and also just so eager to be in the operating room. So we, we had to be really scrappy and creative. And then your second round was easier. How how much you were able to raise for second round? So our second round easier in in some ways, um, in most ways, harder than others. So we'd gone out, and this is you know six months later. We had uh, half a dozen sites or so that were up and running. Um, so we had people that could talk about the usability of the software, the value. We had the data back, you know, from the National Science Foundation. Um, and I had originally thought it would be kind of an extension to a seed round. And this is where it was interesting because I was running the business from Chicago. And so I was pitching to investors in Chicago, of which there are some, but it's not a huge number, but also investors on the East Coast and West Coast. And once I went to the West Coast, I got the feedback of, hey, John, for a healthcare IT company, this is actually a Series A company. So, you know, you have a product, it's deployed in half a dozen hospitals, you have data on it, like you're not commercial yet, but there's really something here and this is a Series A business. Oh, that's 
that's interesting. It's a very different kind of set across the markets. Um, and so we had uh, multiple term sheets by, I think it was early June. I remember because my birthday is the end of May and I really wanted a term sheet on my birthday and I didn't get one that year. It was, I was sad on my birthday. Um, but we, that was the uh, only, that was the last birthday you were sad at though. <laughs> well, it's happy, you know, happy for other reasons, but sad for no term sheet. Um, so we ended up getting multiple term sheets. And um, so that was a, a much faster and more successful fundraise than the one previously. Um, we raised, um, we oversubscribed that round. So I initially had said, hey, let me get another two or, or three million to kind of get that initial. Like I really wanted that three million initially to get off the ground. We had a lot of interest and we ended up oversubscribing and raising, I think, around three and a half million. But the thing that, you know, people don't always think about and I can't really wasn't prepared for was it took a long time to go from term sheet to close. So it, you know, between that period of, you know, getting those term sheets, negotiating the term sheet, picking the one we want to work with, and then all of that final due diligence, um, the company actually ran out of money <laughs> during that time. And so you're sitting there like... I finally got this amazing term sheet. I've got VCs that are so excited to work with me. Um, we're days away from closing it. And I don't know how I'm going to fund payroll. And so, you know, I had originally gone to the VCs and said, can you do a bridge loan? And can you fund some of this early? And said, no, we just, we don't do that. That's not how we operate. And that's where, you know, the managing partner of my old fund came in. And he said, if you're in, I'm in. And so he said, if, if you're going to bridge it yourself and you're that dedicated to it, I will give the rest. Um, and so he and I came in together and did that bridge loan um, to fund payroll for that additional, I think it was about three weeks um, before it ultimately closed and we had cash in the bank. Wow. Wow. Amazing story. Okay. And then... And then eventually you sold the company. So tell me, mm -hmm. tell me what, what was this um, always your exit strategy? Was it um, as a CEO and a founder, do you think about an exit? People call it exit strategy. And I always wonder why should there be an exit? Like, you know, there's no reason to be an exit. Why can't you just stay and continue? I mean, could become public company. I mean, who knows? So was this happen serendipity? Were you really looking for a buyer? How did this happen? Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny because you have to have an exit strategy the moment that you take outside investors, right? And so from that day in 2016, um, I knew that we, we had to have some type of liquidity event. You know, had it just been a business that Alex and I said, we don't need any outside funding. And, you know, we'll just build it ourselves and we'll take distributions, you know, at the appropriate time, we could have done that, but we needed more money to scale. So we knew that we had to have an exit strategy. And so it, it certainly wasn't something that I was going out and, and trying to do. We um, exited the business much earlier than expected um, in 2021. And so what happened was in, in 2020, when, when COVID hit, um, you know, our product so maybe backing up, we had started selling to hospitals. We realized, um, to make a long story short, that it was not the best commercial approach for us. And we started instead marketing and selling the software to the medical device manufacturers who have those team members that are in the room. So those team members saw us, got excited about it. And we realized that was a much better go-to-market um, for us as a business. 
So we would, you know, we sell the software as basically an enterprise software with a cost per license for the number of, you know, team members from the company that was using it. And the medical device company would bring it in and, and use it with the hospital. And so, and there was no charge to the hospital in that approach. So we were getting really nice traction, um, but I think we were still ahead of our time. And so I think we were seen by a lot of, you know, people in the industry as a nice to have product versus a must have. And then when COVID hit, you know, I, I thought the whole business was just going to go kaput because elective surgery was all canceled. So we had this really good pipeline of customers, but everybody was in a COVID frenzy as they should be. And all those conversations stopped. So I called all of our customers to find out, hey, you know, what do you need right now? And I started hearing the same thing over and over, which was, Jen, we actually need to explore more than we've ever needed it before because we can't send our team members in the room. But we can have iPads that are in the room that give all of the guidance that show the proper technique that can teach people how to use our devices and support them. And the ask was to have the HIPAA compliant video. And so our amazing chief technology officer, Eugene, saved the day and in a heroic way built built that into our platform in a very short period of time. And we almost overnight, it seems like went from a nice to have platform to a must have platform. And so, I mean, it was literally a must have. And it's, it's funny if you go into like the medical device, you know, journals of late 2020, you know, it's always what are the best innovations in med tech and, you know, what are the sexiest things in med tech if, if med tech can be sexy. And we were always on that list of, you know, here are the latest and greatest things to do. And so our, our business grew at just an incredible pace. And in 2021, we started getting inbound offers um, to buy the business. And so you know, health tech multiples were very, very high at the time, 2021. It's a different market today. Um, but ultimately, it came down to a discussion between myself and the board where, you know, we said, you know, there's there's always a number. So once you've raised venture capital dollars, you know, there's always going to be a number that your investors are going to be willing to take it off the table for. So if the business is going really great, it's going to be a higher number. If the business isn't going so well, it's going to be a lower number. Um and we ultimately aligned and said, hey, if there is a certain number, then it would make sense to exit the business today. Um, we worked with um, an investment banker who was terrific, um, who ran a relatively short and tight process because um, we had those unsolicited offers, but we wanted to make sure that you know, if, if we were going to sell it, we wanted to make sure that we did a market check to make sure that we were providing the best return that we could to our investors. And so we, we did, we sold the business um, to uh, GHX, um, who is a Warburg Pincus owned healthcare IT company. They're a terrific company that is probably the largest software, healthcare software company that sells to both medical device companies and providers. And so I think it was a very good home for Explorer to be a part of within their product portfolio. Um, but, you know, as, as a CEO, I'd always tried to keep those relationships open, um, so that when the time came, you know, people knew who we were and we weren't having the conversation, you know, for the very first time. So they had a sense of what the business is, what we do, what our growth trajectory was, but it was absolutely not something where, you know, I woke up on 
New Year's Day 21 and said, let's, this is going to be the year that we sell our company. It was very opportunistic based on kind of the, the time and, and the market environment. This is an amazing journey from when you actually started until you sold the company successfully. And uh, I've watched uh, periodically your, your progress uh, in fascination and admiration and was cheering for you uh, in the background. What's next for you? What's uh, now that you sold the company and you are no longer with the company? Mm -hmm. uh, I know you that you're going to be antsy. You want to do something. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so have you? Are you in the contemplation uh, stage? What what have you? What are you thinking about? Yeah, I'm in the contemplation stage. I mean, I'm I'm staying in healthcare. Um, healthcare is just the industry that I I love so much. Um, and you know, I would. Uh, I, I think I'm. I'm leaning toward going back onto the investing side. I think there's just so many tremendous opportunities that are in the marketplace right now. And even as a CEO, I, I still did some investing on the side. So it's just something where I felt like I couldn't resist it. So I, I just, I love meeting entrepreneurs and, and seeing new companies and, you know, going back into investing is a way for me to be able to help support, you know, half a dozen companies at a time, um, being on their board and helping them grow. Um, but I also love building companies. So I think we'll see what's on the horizon. I'm doing some really, really fun things part-time now, um, primarily in women's health, um, which is a sector that I'm incredibly excited about that is getting a lot of momentum and attention that I think is, is really overdue. And so um, for the next three months, um, I'm going to be a mentor with Matter um, based in Chicago for their new accelerator called 51 Labs um, that's focused on women's healthcare. Our first cohort of companies, I think it's, it's going to be announced any day now, um, but it's focused on menopause. And that is a particular you know, area in women's healthcare that I think has been, you know, it's, it's been stigmatized. There isn't a lot of research on it. It's not something people feel comfortable discussing. Um, and I think it's just really been lacking innovation. And so that's just one of the areas that I'm really excited about to spend more time in within healthcare and um, hopefully in some way, shape or form, be a part of, you know, some, some new companies that are going out and transforming and improving care for patients. You know, my next question and probably my last question may sound like a cliche, but it's it's really not. And I genuinely want to know from you, um, you know, lessons learned. Um, and, and I think that the way, I mean, we all know that you have to be persistent, resilient, never give up all of these things that we tell people. And I, I don't want to downplay these, but what I want you to 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 share with with listeners is more along the line of what things really surprised you that were completely not expected pleasantly and badly. I mean, when we go into this journey, we are always going to be faced by things that we never expect. Some of these are great and welcome, and some of these are horrendous and terrible. And I think through these, you build your resilience and your experience. So can you share some of these with us? That's um, that's a, a toughie and a, and a deep one. Um, I think one of the things that I I wasn't prepared for um, going in as CEO is, is just everything is so concentrated. And so coming from being in finance and having a portfolio of companies, you know, as the founder CEO, like every high is so high but every low is so low. And so I feel like every 
deal that we didn't close, I took very personally. Um, and I took it home with me and it was, it was, it was really, really hard on me. Um, and so I think the more that you can try to try to take some of the emotions out of it, I, I would say something that would help, but I, I don't know if that's really possible, right? Like you're building a business. I mean, it's like a, a, a baby and, and you take things so personally. Um, so, okay. So I'm trying to think of some of the specific things that were, uh, surprising. Um, the time between signing a term sheet and close was absolutely surprising. So that was something that I wasn't prepared for that I talked about and kind of that specific surprise. Um, and, you know, I think the other piece of it is just the, the people management aspect. And so it's a tremendous responsibility, not just managing the capital that's come in to build the company, but you're ultimately responsible for, you know, the livelihood of, you know, for, for me, dozens of people, but for, you know, other CEOs, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people. And so, you know, your ability to keep the lights on, as we say, as a startup CEO, um, it's just so incredibly important to every single employee that is going and, you know, providing for their family, right. And paying for their student loans and, you know, paying their rent. Um, and it's a big weight, um, on your shoulders. And as the team grew, you know, everything ends up filtering up to you. And so there is a, there is a big HR burden as well as the CEO of taking care of all of your employees. And so having employees, you know, in crisis, whether it was, um, a physical health challenge, you know, a mental health challenge, um, you know, retaining employees in a crazy job market or trying to hire people. Um, those are all things that I think just surprised me of the, amount of energy and kind of emotions for me that were, you know, tied up in that. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Uh, Jennifer, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me. I know your schedule is pretty busy and you're traveling around the road, but uh, giving us an hour of your time means a lot. And I can't wait to see the next chapter. And uh, I'm going to be selfish, hoping that I'll play a small part in it. It was neighbors. I love it. It was my pleasure being on the podcast with you. And I look forward to many North Shore coffee conversations uh, to build lots of great new healthcare companies together. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate you tuning in, and I appreciate you taking time of your busy schedule to listen to this podcast and be inspired about what it takes to build a company from scratch and take it from A to Z with an exit strategy that is successful. I hope you enjoyed listening to Jennifer Freed as much as I enjoyed interviewing her, and I hope you learned also the importance of resilience, perseverance, and the fact that even when you have a mission, there are lots of obstacles and perseverance is what allow us all to overcome these. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. Also visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Winston Churchill. Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Until next time, take care.